The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Hello, how are you? Hey, welcome to Genesis. Glad you are here. Uh, If you are here for the first time, welcome. I am glad you are here. I'm not sure how you found us, but I'm glad you did. Hey, thanks for coming uh, tonight. Last week was uh, a really big week for our community because uh, we made a decision uh, and we're able to announce it to the Genesis community last week. And that decision was that uh, in a few months' time, actually about five months' time, uh, we are looking at taking Genesis and planting this as a brand new church in uh, this New England area. So when I say New England, I don't mean like we're going to Vermont or New Hampshire. I mean like in a few mile radius of where we're currently sitting. So uh, that was really exciting, and uh, over the next really few weeks, I'm going to be giving regular updates as to what's happening with the church plant and uh, some of the things that we're doing. One of the things that uh, I wanted to let you know is uh, one of the very first things that we needed to do was to form a team of people that would be intentionally uh, working on launching Genesis uh, as a church. And it's a very creative name we've come up with. It's called the Launch Team. I know. Go ahead. Give it up for that. Um, So over the next five months, this Launch Team will be uh, working very diligently uh, leading up towards launch, looking at everything from location and uh, the space that uh, we would consider home and gather uh, as just systems and structures of Genesis, finances, and uh, one of the big things that I just want to put on your radar now is uh, on Sunday, May 3rd, uh, we're going to be coming to the Genesis community and asking you to make a decision. And the decision is going to be, do I want to be part of the core community of people uh, who are going to help plant and establish a brand new church? Um, and over the month of April, the next four Sundays, I'm going to be speaking into what it means to be part of uh, a core community. But first Sunday in May, May 3rd, we're going to set that Sunday aside as the day that you can declare, hey, God has really called me to be part of establishing this brand new church. Count me in. I want to be part of it. And um, that's one option. Another option uh, would simply be, you know what, I, I want to continue to come to Genesis, but I'm just not really sure... Uh, if I'm ready to commit to being, uh, if Genesis goes, I'm just not sure. You might be in that undecided place. So there's still a place for you. We want you to continue to come, continue to seek the Lord, and just figure out, God, are you calling me to help build your church? Uh, So that would be another option. And the third option would be the option to say, you know what? Genesis has been a great community, a great experience for me, but uh, I'm going to say, Uh, not now. I am uh, not feeling called to be part of it, and if you could help me find another church, and maybe it's Hope Christian Church, which Genesis is part of, uh, then we'll help you you find a place in the Hope Christian Church community or another church as well. So uh, that's going to be coming on uh, Sunday, May 3rd. Uh, So more updates, more announcements uh, about Genesis, the church plant. But I just, I'm excited about this. I hope you guys are. It's a really big deal uh, what God is calling us as a community to do, and I'm excited to see how the Lord's going to uh, provide in the days to come. Think for a minute, we're in this Jesus series, and uh, we've been, this is week 17, Uh, we've been going at uh, the Gospel of Mark now for about five months, and I wanted you to think of 
just a story you've heard where you heard the story and you're like, no, that didn't happen. Like that type of story where you're like, either this person's entered into the world of exaggeration and is actually lying about this, or this would just be too unbelievable to actually be possible. Uh, so get that story in your mind of uh, maybe it's something that happened to you and you tried to explain it and someone was like, no, that's just not possible. Or maybe you heard someone tell a story. So get that story in your mind. As I was thinking about uh, some of the impossibles, so to speak, I was actually struggling to come up with some stories. And so I turned to a very good resource for the unbelievable. It's called The Globe. I just want you to know, this was really embarrassing the high school man uh, was looking at me when I'm like, I'd like to purchase this. And um, he was like, really? And I was like, just please ring it up so I can walk out of here with some level of, of dignity. You know, you read a, a magazine or a newspaper like the Globe or the National Enquirer, and some of these things, you know, this is my first time ever buying this. I'm not a regular at this type of thing. And, but you see the headlines and you're just like, you know, it's just not possible. Obviously, you know, there's something going on with Charles and his Camilla. I can't even tell you what, what they're doing, but you, you just flip through this, and it's, you know, women who are getting impregnated by aliens, and the babies that are coming out, it's like, really? <laughs> stuff about flying cars, stuff about the devil at age 74. I didn't know the devil was 74. I thought he was older than that. There's something in here about Obama that I can't even tell you about. So it's funny, as I flip through this, there's stuff that I can't even read and to tell you, but I flip through something as just ridiculous as this and chalk it up as, this is ridiculous. This is not even possible. Like, the stories that they come up with, I don't know if these were like the people in, like, who wanted to have a writing career, and they're like, you know, I'm not really that good at it, I'll apply for the Globe. Because I can just make up whatever and it will sell. Well, as I was thinking about impossible stories, I wanted you to think about if you were hearing this for the very first time, what if you heard this story? Man gets baptized in river, and a voice from heaven is heard saying, this is my son in whom I love, I am well pleased. A voice from heaven, okay, not from around earth, but a voice from heaven is heard saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. How about this headline? Man fights with Satan in the desert for 40 days. Satan taps out. Man assembles a team of men to change the world. On that team, some fishermen, a tax collector, and a few other no-names. Man teaches in ways that leaves crowds amazed. Man is found driving out countless demons from people, and it worked. Man begins healing people with all sorts of diseases, including those with leprosy and paralysis. Man accused of being Satan. That's in here, actually. He's 74. Man tells the wind and the waves to behave themselves, and they listen to him. How about this headline? Man raises a 12-year-old girl who was dead back to life. About this headline, a man feeds a crowd of 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish, and all were satisfied at that picnic. Or how about this headline, 
Man walks on water. If you were to find these stories in something as ridiculous as a National Enquirer or as the Globe, you would just chalk up those stories as ridiculous, not possible. Absolutely not possible. But what do you do when you're confronted with those headlines in the story that we have been walking through? The Gospel of Mark. Every week for about the last five months, each of us has been confronted with this man. And by the way, this man, his name is Jesus. Every week you come in and we are confronted with who is this man, Jesus? Who was he? Who is he? What is he doing now? I'm sure that you could read some of those headlines and say, seriously? A man raised a dead girl back to life? Seriously, a man walked on water? Seriously, someone looked at the wind and the waves and said, behave, cut it out, rebuke them, and they listened? People who were paralyzed never walked, all of a sudden start walking. People who are blind never have seen, all of a sudden they receive their sight. I mean, some of these headlines, some of us would say not possible. Absolutely not possible. If we've learned anything about Jesus, one thing that we have learned is that remaining indifferent to him is just not an option. Like you cannot hear these stories and say, well, whatever, it's all good. At some point, we need to make a decision to say, uh, who is Jesus? And what does Jesus mean for me? I've shared this quote a couple times throughout the series, but um, a famous Jewish author said it like this, Jesus Christ is to me the outstanding personality of all time, all history, both as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. Everything he ever said or did has value for us today, and that is something you can say of no other man, dead or alive. There is no easy middle ground to stroll upon. You either accept Jesus or you reject him. The question that I want each of us to begin, if you have not already, uh, asking is, really, Jesus has done all of that? Like the Jesus that we've met just in the first six chapters of the story of Mark. At some point in time, you have to ask yourself the question, really, did he do all of these things? And we haven't even gotten to the end yet, when it gets even more amazing. Because one of the things you need to make a decision on is if Jesus is who he said he is, and he has done all of the things that he did, and we're reading about, then there comes a point you must make the decision of either I'm going to reject him or I'm going to orient my entire existence around this person, Jesus Christ. Now, some of us hear this, like, orient my entire life around the person of Jesus, and because we come from such an independent culture that says, I'm I'm my own man, I'm my own woman, I'll do it my own way, I'm not going to orient my life around anybody. We have such a hard time wrestling with this, but the reality is we fail to recognize that we do orient our entire lives around someone or something. It just becomes a question is, is what you are orienting your life around actually worth it? 
is what you are orienting your life around actually worth it? You take a look at people who, who give their souls, their very existence for the career and for the, the applause that comes with that, for the money, for the fame, the, I mean, all of these things and the toys. You, you need to realize that we're going to orient our lives around something or someone. It just becomes a question of, is what you're orienting your life around tonight? I don't mean tomorrow. I mean like right now. Is it really worth it? For me personally, I made the decision uh, a while ago that said, Jesus. I examined who he was, examined what he did, what he said. I looked at his life and made a decision that there is no one that is worth orienting my life around more than the person, the God-man named Jesus Christ. So tonight we come to a passage in scriptures, just so you know, I don't typically preach from the globe. It's, it's ridiculous, right? But the story we're coming at tonight, some people would look at this story and say, ridiculous, absolutely not possible. A man walked on water. Really? Anyone ever see someone walk on water? And I'm not talking about Jim Carrey. Okay, apparently only a few few of you saw that movie. Or maybe you just didn't like it. But this is the story that we uh, find ourselves in tonight. Jesus, again, doing something that to us is just utterly impossible. And I want us to wrestle. If this is the Jesus we continue to be confronted week in and week out, Is he the one that I should be orienting my entire life around? Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark, starting at chapter 6. Father, God, you are good, and uh, it is good to be in this place. Jesus, you are worth uh, giving our lives to. You give us hope, you give us joy, you give us freedom, forgiveness of sin. You give us life, both now and life eternal. And because of that, we celebrate you in this place. Jesus, I pray that as we take a look at this story found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, God, that our eyes would be opened to what you would have to speak to us in this place tonight. So, Father, I do pray that every man, every woman's heart would be open to receive what you have to speak into uh, each of us. God, I pray that by the end of this evening, by uh, the end of looking at Scripture and worshiping, that uh, we would be different because we had an encounter with you in this place. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 6, if you have a Bible, go there, uh, starting at uh, verse 45. And just so you know, if you're brand new to the community, kind of the way we roll here is we just take it verse by verse. We just walk through the story because we just believe that every, everything in Scripture has something to say to us. And so we like to walk through uh, taking it a verse at a time. Starting at verse 45, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where while he dismissed the crowd after uh, leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Last week we talked about Jesus feeding the multitudes, 5,000 plus. It was actually probably a crowd of upwards of 15,000 people. And what I love what Jesus does in these just two verses is after this mass picnic, 
that uh, Jesus feeds all of these people. He's the great shepherd, and he takes care of his disciples. They were going to be pressed and crushed by the crowd. And so he comes alongside and takes care of them, puts them on a boat, and says, head off to Bethsaida. I'll meet you there. And then he dismisses the crowd. So the shepherd cares for not only his disciples, but he cares for the people. And then what I love what Jesus does is he practices what he preaches. Like one of the biggest criticisms, and rightly so a lot of the time, is just Christians, sometimes pastors. We just don't practice what we preach. We say one thing, but we do totally the way our life is lived totally opposite of what we actually speak or what we say. So Jesus is t- told, uh, told his disciples to take rest, to find a quiet place to rest with him. And so it says he went up on the mountainside, solitude, to pray. As I'm thinking about if Jesus does this, Jesus, the God-man, God in flesh, if he takes time to go off and be in a place of solitude, so that he can pray, if Jesus does this, I wonder, is this a practice, an example that we should follow? If Jesus, God in flesh, does this solitude, spending time in prayer, I wonder, is this an example that we should follow? If you were to look at John chapter 6, verse 15, this is John's gospel of recording the very same event, and it says this, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. These people were coming to make him king. They just were so impressed with this feeding of the multitude that all were satisfied. He's got to be our king. He's got to be our king. And that was not Jesus' mission. And so he left. It's amazing what solitude has a way to focus you on what really matters most. What mattered most was not Jesus becoming king of the people. Jesus had a very specific mission, seek and save those that were lost, to give his life. And somehow the solitude was able to keep Jesus focused on what his actual mission was. Now, this is a very side note, not even that big of a deal, but I like how Mark just says he went up on the mountainside. Now, given I've been to Israel before, I've seen this place with my own eyes. It is not Mount Everest, okay? But it's also not like a little baby mohill where he climbed up 12 feet. There was some work involved in where Jesus went. He went up on top of the mountainside to be alone and to pray. As I just sit with that and read that, something that resonated with me was the harder you work to find that place of solitude, the more value that place actually has. For me personally, if I need times of solitude and rest, for me just to walk downstairs to my basement, close the door, which I don't have a door, but hypothetically, like, that's okay, but when I go off intentionally to a place and drive an hour and a half away because there's a very specific place that I can find solitude in a friend's cabin, There is something about that, that there's value and worth. The harder that I work to get to that place of solitude, I just find that there's just something to be said about when I get there. I've worked hard to get there. Now, solitude. We live in a very noisy world. I don't think anyone would disagree with me when I say we live in a noisy, in a loud world. 
I was going to go on for like at least two minutes just to freak you all out. I can't even handle the silence. Like, God, start talking. Like, there's just something about silence that freaks us out. We have such a hard time getting to a place where we can just be silent. I couldn't even handle 10 seconds. Because you're all looking at me like, say something. You're making us uncomfortable. This is awkward. And isn't that so true what happens when we get to a place of silence? It's like 10 seconds. It's like, someone save me. Where's my headphones? Silence is just something that is so hard, so difficult. I confess, I have the hardest time sitting in silence. Why is that? Blaise Pascal said something um, along these lines. He said, you can trace the sin of the world back to one thing. Man is afraid to sit alone in a room with his God. You can trace the sin of the world back to one thing. Man is afraid to sit alone in a room with his God. Meaning that in the solitude, at some level, we begin to wonder. We begin to wonder if God alone will satisfy. When you get alone and you get quiet, you start to wrestle with these thoughts. Is God alone? Will he satisfy? Will he be enough? Is his voice actually the voice that I need most? And because we begin to question that God is not enough, we run back out into the noise. I just want to encourage you. And by the way, I am so preaching to myself right now. I am one who I will confess I have the most difficult time finding a place of silence and solitude. When I do find that place, I am never disappointed. It is just so refreshing. Now, when Jesus, I find it a bit interesting that when Jesus comes down from the mountain of his time of solitude and prayer, Jesus walks on the water. I don't know. It's just very interesting coming down the mountain, solitude and prayer, connecting with God. First thing he does post that is to walk on the water. Now, it's a good chance that none of us is going to walk on the water when you come back from your place of solitude, but you might walk very differently. You might walk very differently if you find the discipline of solitude and silence. And then notice it says, in the solitude, Jesus prayed. Now, one of the most hands-down annoying questions that people have ever asked, and I have fallen prey to asking is, have you ever had someone come up to you and be like, how's your prayer life? And it's always annoying to me because I never have a good answer. I never, have never answered, oh my gosh, if you're looking to have a prayer life, check mine out. You should model your prayer life after mine. I always have a response of, oh, it could be better. I'm working on it. It's okay. I always have that response. And so rather than ask you a question that tends to beat you up, fill you with guilt and shame of how's your prayer life? Oh, it's not that good. I'll work on it. I, I, I promise, Pastor. I just want, we get to pray. Like sometimes the thought is, I have to pray. I have to do this. I have to do this. No, I just want you to hear the message from somebody that tells you, no, we get to pray. Like this is a gift. So the thought of going to a place of solitude and praying, wow, we get to do that? I mean, have you ever had that approach with prayer like, I get to do this? This is amazing. 
I wonder if we had that approach to prayer, maybe we'd have better answers. I just want you to hear, we get to pray. It's an incredible gift. I'm guessing that Jesus prayed not because he had to, but there was something about connecting with his heavenly Father that just refreshed his heart and his soul. Like, we get to do this. I'll say it one more time. We get to do this. You don't have to. We get to. It's a gift. Jesus goes on. Mark is uh, going on in the story here. And we're roughly around 8 o'clock in the evening. Jesus sends the disciples off. He sends uh, the crowds off. It's getting dark, so roughly in Israel, around 7, 8 o'clock. And so Jesus went up on the mountainside to pray. Now we're approaching around 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. So Jesus has been up on the mountainside for roughly between 6 to 8 hours. Now these guys have been paddling for 6 to 8 hours. Jesus has been hanging out with his father, silence and solitude and prayer. We pick up the story. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Okay, Jesus is on the land at this time, and it doesn't say it in Mark's text. You can look at the Gospel of John where I'm getting these numbers. But they're roughly about three miles away. Jesus sees them. Okay, they're not like 10 feet offshore. They're not like at the back of the room. They're roughly about two and a half to three miles away. It's dark, and there's a storm going on. I just, I want you to catch that phrase. Jesus sees them. How is this possible? How is it possible that Jesus has this vision where he can see in the dark, weather's bad, three miles away? Fully God, fully man. This is an incredible narrative here pointing again to the deity of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that phrase. Jesus sees them. I have confidence to know that if he can see in the dark, miles and miles away, them, it's a good chance, no matter what my situation is, no matter what my circumstance may be, I take great joy and great comfort that Jesus sees. And not only does Jesus see, I just want you to hear this. He sees you. Some of you are living in such a way right now where God, he can't see anything. Because if he did, he'd do something. You think that God needs glasses, his vision is just messed up. I just, Jesus sees. It doesn't matter how dark, it doesn't matter the distance, he sees. And not only that, he cares. He sees the disciples straining at the oars, as Mark uh, says. And in, uh, in a Greek text, this word straining at the oars means, means being tortured in rowing. Okay, so these guys just weren't like struggling. Wow, wow, this is pretty windy out here. These guys, for eight hours roughly, are being tortured in the rowing process, meaning little progress is being made because of this wind. It's funny, as I picture these guys, 12 guys in a boat, trying to get to the destination Jesus is saying. And by the way, where Jesus sent them to go is about five, six miles. So 
after six to eight hours of rowing, they're only halfway there. And they're not making any progress, being tortured by rowing. This is such a great metaphor for life. (laughs) Have you just ever looked at your life and you're like, you know what? I'm making absolutely no progress. Like I am just spinning and spinning and spinning. I'm going nowhere. I mean, have you ever examined your life in such a way where after months you're like, you know what? I'm in the exact same spot as I was six months ago. Now, the reality is some people don't even examine themselves that much, and you could go three years, and you don't look any different after three years, and you come to this place of like, you know what? I'm spinning my wheels. I have not made any forward progress. I'm in the middle of a lake, and sometimes you look at this story at least, the most frustrating thing is it's the wind that's giving them a hard time. Something that is as uncontrollable as the wind is the very thing that's coming up against them. The reality is the life we live, there will be things that are absolutely uncontrollable that are coming up against you. It's just a question of what do you do when you're in the boat three miles away from your destination and you're making absolutely no progress. This is just a crazy thought. But why didn't any of the disciples pray and rebuke the wind? I know it's a crazy thought, but I'm thinking they saw Jesus do it. Wasn't there at least one of them who said, hey, do you guys remember that day? We were kind of out here, similar situation, freaking out. Does anyone remember what Jesus said? What was that prayer again? I mean, why didn't anyone remember and say, Let's do this. Let's just try. If it doesn't work, then we're in the same spot. Nothing lost. Like, wasn't there at least one man who came out and said, hey, you know what? Let's pray. I saw Jesus do this, and maybe by chance, it will work. And I wonder if Jesus was on the shore watching. Maybe the delay in Jesus coming to these men in the middle of the sea Maybe Jesus was thinking, come on, guys, somebody offer up the prayer. Come on, you've seen me do it. Somebody take a, a, a risk. Someone just take a step of faith and just pray. Speak to the wind. Tell it to calm down. I wonder. Now, some of you might be like, that's Michael, you're reaching too far. If, like, that actually happened, it would have been in the story. Well, the point, it's not in the story, so I'm kind of thinking it didn't happen. I'm just asking the question, why didn't it? Because when I'm in the midst of my own spinning my wheels, so to speak, why don't I just simply do what I know to do and what I've seen Jesus do? Like, I have the Bible. Uh, This is not a Bible. I have the Bible. I know the stories. I know what Jesus, my king, has done. When I'm in that spot, in that place, why don't I follow the lead of the one I follow? Why didn't they at least try? Mark gives us a clue as to why they didn't try. And really the answer is one word, it's fear. And I'm going to really hit hard on this tonight, this issue of fear. So brace yourselves. Mark 6, starting at 49, the second part of the verse. 
About the fourth watch of the night, this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Around 3, 4 a.m., Jesus decides to go out to them. Now, for Mark, this just seems to be not really that big of a deal. He was walking on the lake. This is a really big deal to me. And what I really love about this is he walked. He didn't run. He didn't like dance and frolic on the water. He wasn't like tiptoeing, freaking out like, oh, I hope I make it. There was a confidence in Jesus as he stepped foot on the water. Who is this that he would have such confidence to step out on the water and not run and not prance and frolic, but I will walk to them? Who is this Jesus that can see in the distance And then has the idea of, well, the quickest way to get to them is just to walk to them. I'm not going to walk around the shore. He walked on the water. This is no man. He is fully God, but yet fully man. Mark makes mention that he is about to pass by. I don't want you to misunderstand that Jesus was like, I hope they don't see me. Might freak them out a little bit. The point of that was Jesus wanted his disciples to see him. That's why he was passing by. So they would be in the boat like, wow, did you guys see that? That's amazing. This is an Old Testament allusion to something that happened to Moses. Moses asked God, I want to see your glory. And God said, not going to happen. But I do have something I will let you see, not my face, because anyone who sees my face will die. And so he takes Moses and places him in the cleft of a rock so that God would pass by him, cover Moses, but then when God passed by, he would let Moses see his backside. He says, Exodus 33, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now, unlike Moses, who was delighting and excited to see God pass by, the disciples' reaction to Jesus passing by is just a little bit different. Okay, these are like tough fishermen, right? I'm I'm guessing that they've seen a lot of things on the water. But something, when they see Jesus, they start screaming like a bunch of little kids. And and they're just utterly terrified. And I'm wondering, like, if Jesus is thinking, yes, good choice I made. These are the men that I have selected (laughs) to be my ambassadors to go change the world. Thinking to himself, wow, what was I thinking with this selection? Every time we seem to find these guys on the water, I'm starting to wonder, were they even fishermen? It's like they don't know how to, like, work a boat. They don't know how to even catch fish because Jesus is like, have you caught anything? Like, no, we don't know what we're doing. 
do they really think is coming towards them? When they see this person, like, who did they honestly think was coming towards them? Like, who was the first person in the group that said, wow, that must be Casper? <laughs> like, it just seems like a far stretch to get from Jesus. They've been living with Jesus, by the way, traveling with him for at least a year and a half, two years. So it's not like this was the first week where they could be confused. They have been with this man. Like, who thought it's a ghost? It, it just, it clearly has to be a ghost. As I'm thinking about these guys, this response, this reaction that they have when Jesus is coming near to them, they are filled with fear. They are terrified so much that they are crying out. It makes me wonder, at least in my own life, how do I respond when God comes near? When I see God coming towards me, is my response always one of like, oh, well, glad you showed up. Welcome. I've been waiting. Or is my response actually more similar to the disciples? Like, what is it that we are actually so afraid of when God comes near? Like, did the disciples, do we think that when God comes near, he's actually coming to level us? Or is there anything that in us that says he's actually coming near to love us? This is a really important question. What are we so afraid of? What were these disciples so afraid of? Were they afraid that they were going to be condemned? With You guys are awful at rowing this boat. I mean, were they just thinking? Are we thinking that when God comes near, it's automatic condemnation? You're a failure. You're a loser. Like, is there anything in us that says, you know, when God comes near, it's because he cares. He's coming near because he cares. Immediately, I love Jesus' response. He sees the fear. They're crying out. Crying out. Mark chapter 6, verse 50. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage, it's I. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them. And the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, meaning what happened the day before. Their hearts were hardened. Notice that Jesus comforts right away. He does not criticize. What's wrong with you people? You're crying? You think I'm a ghost? What's wrong with you? No, take courage. It's me. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. I love that. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. As I was looking at this phrase, don't be afraid, uh, the nuance and the, the structure of this, it's a, a present imperative, and Jesus is saying, don't go on being afraid. Meaning from this point forward, don't be a people of fear. 
Don't go on being afraid. I asked the question, why are they so afraid? Mark says they didn't understand. They didn't understand the loaves, meaning the feeding of the, the masses. I'm thinking, what's so difficult to understand about the feet? Like the bread was coming from their hands. It wasn't like they watched from a distance like, wow, this is amazing. How's he doing that? The bread was coming from them. They were putting it in the people's hands. 5,000 plus fully satisfied. What's not to get about how Jesus provided that day that they're confused? What is it that caused confusion leading towards their fear? It's so easy for me to get down on them like, seriously, what's wrong with you guys? Come on, man up. But then I look in the mirror. I say, Michael, man, you do the same thing. How quickly I forget what God has done. Like the circumstance of the day causes some sort of amnesia in me. No matter what the situation might be, no matter how whatever is happening that day, that week, that month, it's like whatever the, the situation is, it dictates my memory. Because if it's going really bad, my first thought is, wow, I forgot everything that God has ever done for me. I somehow think, well, God's never provided for me. Isn't it amazing how situation, circumstance can cause an amnesia of the heart, causing us to forget the very things that God has done? And this is what Mark says. He says, uh, their hearts were hardened. And as I was thinking about that, a person who's forgotten what God has done begins to really question the goodness of God and their heart begins to grow hard. I want you to catch that part. When we believe that God's just done nothing, our hearts begin ultimately to grow very hard towards him. And the consequences of a hard heart towards God is just devastating. I was writing down a really long list of people who have a hardened heart towards God. What actually happens to that person? What becomes of that person? And the list was long, but I just felt compelled to at least just share. I just want to share one thing. And I'm not saying this is the biggest thing. I'm just saying when we, our hearts get hard towards God, we miss it. We just miss the activity of God in our lives. We can't see. It blinds us. A hardened heart not only causes amnesia, but it causes blindness. We can't see what God is doing in us, around us, through us. A person who has a hard heart towards God is a very forgetful person of what God has already done and is a person who is struggling with blindness, spiritual blindness. They just can't see what God is doing. I know that's happened to me a lot, and I wonder, has it happened to you a lot? Your heart has grown hard towards God Thus, it's led you to be very forgetful of who God is and what God has done. Not only forgetful, but it blinded you. What caused such great fear in these guys? Mark says it was a hardened heart. And from the overflow of a hardened heart, 
comes fear. The main problem with fear, by the way, I was just thinking about this this afternoon. The main problem with fear is not what it causes you to do. Like the main problem is not like you cry and scream and freak out. The main problem with a person who has fear is what it prevents you from doing. And in this case, it prevents these men, consequently us as well, from trusting. Fear, it's not so much what it causes you to do. It's what it prevents you from doing. So rather than having fear, what Jesus is trying to say to us, faith, don't let your hearts be so hard, forgetful, and blind that it causes fear rather than faith. Now, if you struggle with fear, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many people here struggle with fear? Every, I'm guessing at some level, a lot of us struggle with fear. Fear of the future, fear of, is, is, how is this going to play out? Fear of your past, it keeps haunting you. Fear of just people and relationships. We are just a culture that's driven. So many decisions are made just in fear. Like all of us, all of us, and I mean that, myself included, fear is such an issue in our lives. And if you struggle with that, it's a heart condition. It's not a circumstance condition. It's a heart condition. The good news is that we have a God the person of Jesus who knows exactly how to deal with a heart that is hard towards him. We have a God who knows how to take a a hard heart and create a new heart, a heart that's sensitive towards him. And what I love about the good news that's coming from heaven is the good news is that the love that God has for you, for me, for humanity, it's called a perfect love. Love, not based on performance, but based on his character. First John verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 just says simply, perfect love drives out all fear. God demonstrates his perfect love for humanity when Jesus walked among us. If you are a person who deals with fear, and this is, at some level, all of us. It's a heart condition. And the only one who can deal with the heart that humanity has is the person of Jesus. Why? Because he loves you perfectly. Not because of what you've done or won't do, but because of who he is. And when the love of God penetrates your life, that love, being perfect, drives out all fear. So I want you to sit with this statement. If you are a Christian... If you are a person who's made a decision to follow Jesus, you have no business being a fearful person. I want you to sit with that. Why? Because the love of God in your life drives out all fear. Why? Because I have Jesus. If I know Jesus, if I'm walking with Jesus, I have nothing, and I emphasize nothing, all capital letters, nothing to be afraid of. My future... It's, it's, it's in God's hands. I don't need to freak out and worry and be anxious and stressed about it. Why? Because 
God's already walked there. I just want you to hear this. If you are a person who struggles with fear, it's a heart condition. Jesus deals with the heart, one that is hardened towards him and sets it free. Perfect love drives out all fear. If you're a Christian, there's no place for you to have fear. Now, the beauty of this is, if you're not a Christian, if you're a person here tonight who's not made a decision to trust your life to the person of Jesus, the only answer, the only solution to fear being eradicated in your life is Jesus Christ. Why? Because perfect love drives out all fear. Just sit with that word. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Who says that? Who talks like that? Like, no one can say that. I don't care who, no one can say that. No one has the authority, the power to say something like that to us. But the one who speaks these words, Jesus, God in flesh, fully God, fully man, has the authority to look you in the eyes, look at your heart of hearts, and say, take courage. Take courage. It's me. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. Hear those words wherever the fear is in your life. Take courage. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. Mark finished this section of chapter 6 in many ways as a summary statement to the end of this uh, chapter. And he says this in verse 53 and 56. When they had crossed over, they landed uh, at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region, carried the sick on mats uh, to uh, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let him touch even the edge of his cloak. Catch this. This is beautiful. And all who touched him were healed. What's amazing is these people were running towards Jesus, but yet the men who were walking and living and following Jesus, saw him coming were like, whoa, Casper, stay away. But yet these people ran towards him. Now, what I love about this is, how did the name of Jesus, how did they know about him? How was it possible when they landed in this place, Gennesaret, that all the people recognized Jesus? One might start thinking, Man, was there like a missionary there? Was there a champion for the person of Jesus in this region? Yes. If you remember back to Mark chapter 5, which I know is only a chapter ago, but it's like three months ago. Jesus meets a man who is plagued with thousands of demons. This guy comes running. Jesus loves him, sets him free, and he gives him a mission. And his mission is found in Mark 5, verse 19. Jesus did not let him come, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and he began to tell him the Decapolis, which is this area, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. He did it. 
So much so when Jesus came back to that area, they recognized the name of Jesus. Why? Because one man who had his life changed went and was a missionary and said, let me tell you the great work of God. Let me tell you about Jesus. He had mercy on me. He gave me a new life, a new heart, and he gave me a mission. As I think about our community, let me ask you this question. Three years from now, will people recognize Jesus in this area? Three years from now, will people recognize Jesus in this area? That's another way of saying, will we be faithful? Those who have made the decision to say, yeah, I want to be that guy. Why? Because my life was set completely free. My mission, go tell the world how much God's done for me. It's that simple. Will three years from now, people in this area recognize Jesus because of our testimony, because of our story, because of our lives, because we can't stop telling people, you got to meet this God-man Jesus. He's amazing. He loved me with a perfect love, not on anything I've done or would do, but because that's who he is. Fear, non-existent in my life. How is that possible? Jesus. Well, people in this area, this five, ten-mile radius, this Boston, greater Boston area, will they recognize the God-man Jesus because of our testimony? See, those who have come into contact with the person, the God-man of Jesus, have a story to tell. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid of my future. I'm not afraid of what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I'm not afraid of how it's going to happen or how it's going to be provided. Why? Because God has loved me in a perfect love and it's driven out all fear. If that's our story, that's compelling. Tonight, as we would close and enter into a time where we can just worship God together, I want you to sit with a question that I think Mark and ultimately Jesus is asking. He's speaking to us. Would we be people who would hear that word, take courage? It is I. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. As we enter into worship, know that the one that we sing these songs to, we can sing in such a way where we say, thank you for driving fear out of my life. Thank you for loving me so much that fear is no longer reality. If fear is a reality, confess it. God, infiltrate my heart with your perfect love, casting out all fear. Father God, thank you, Jesus, for loving us with a perfect love. As we would enter into a time to express worship to you. God, let these not just be songs we sing. God, let these be the cry, the prayer of our hearts. We are a people who have so much to sing about. We have a God that we can make a big deal about. You've loved us in such a way that we can hear these words, take courage, it is I, it's Jesus. Do not be afraid. 
Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.